Welcome to Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi, a passionate and relentless pursuit of exploring how individuals use good judgment in everyday life, both in their personal and professional lives. Thank you so much for joining us again. Today I'm so excited. I'm actually talking to Ayanda Siboni. She's the executive brand, marketing, and communications at PPS. Ayanda, how are you? I'm very well, and thank you for having me today. Thank you for agreeing, because you know I was on your case, and you were trying to avoid it. Um, but I met you last year, and I remember after my interactions with you, I sent communication to somebody. I was like, at last. I was like, finally I meet an African female who owns her position. So today, they're going to find out why. You grew up in Umlazi. Yes. What was your upbringing like? What did you do with your pastime? So uh, Umlazi is in the south of Durban, for those who, who don't know. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Umlazi in a, in a home where I had two older sisters, and it was a three-parent home. So I lived with my mother, father, and grandmother. Um, mm. And those two ladies in my life were very, very powerful role models and uh, figures in my life. Mm. Um, and my father also was a very present father, a very fine example of a family man. Yeah. In fact, he raised me as his son. So being oh. the last born... Oh, you too had that yes, privilege. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Being the last born, I think they expected a son. And when yeah. I wasn't, he decided I was going to be. Oh, my gosh. So I We spent, have some similarity there. Yeah. I spent uh, some of my youth uh, fixing cars with him. Mm. Uh, cutting grass, yeah. doing all the things that uh, girls wouldn't necessarily do. Yeah. But my favorite uh, pastime as a, as a child, I, I can't even describe it in English, but it's just playing in the street because we yeah. used to play in the neighborhood. Yeah. Lots of indigenous games. Yes. Um, you rope. Rope. All of those things. And I feel so sorry for my kids that they don't have that. You know. Because it was just, I think those were the best yeah. times of, of my life. I used to climb trees. Yeah, I have many I, I, scratches yeah, from like falling off trees. But yes. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So as the executive for brand marketing and communications at PPS, what is PPS and what do you guys do? PPS is the largest mutual society that's just focused on graduate professionals. Mm -hmm. So started in 1941 uh, by eight dentists. It was... After, you know, during the war, they realized that as a professional, your biggest asset is your ability to earn an income and you mm. earn your income through your skills and knowledge. And when a lot of the, the professionals had gone to war and were maimed, they came back and they couldn't trade and they couldn't do what they needed to do. So these eight guys came together and said, well, let's build a mutual society where we take care of each other. So it started off with dentists, then morphed, you know, and became all other professionals. Okay, yeah. And it's a business that is um, financial services anchored on, um, on the life insurance kind of side of business. Mm. So we, we specialize in income protection. So someone like yourself um, who is self-employed, you know, when you are not well and yes. are in, unable to work. Which is everybody's fear as an yes. entrepreneur. Yeah. Yes. We would then take care of your gross professional income and pay you that for the time that you're not well. And if you're not well for an extended period, then it is up until the end of your working career that we will take care wow. of that. Wow. Because we don't have shareholders, our members are the, the essentially yeah. the owners of, yeah. the, of the business. So 
our very unique uh, proposition is that we have profit share. So all the profits that the business makes gets divvied up amongst our members, which yeah. is something absolutely special. Yeah. Well, now that you've started talking about unique value proposition, what is your unique value proposition? What makes you memorable? Because I know what made you memorable, because I have obviously been in corporate quite a, a long, not that long, but <laughs> sizable you know, number of years. And there's just something that struck me about you. So I believe it's authenticity. Mm -hmm. um, I am the same whether you meet me at PPS or you meet me in another setting. I, I am who I am, and um, and I and I own, mm. you know, that. Um, it doesn't always sit well with with others, and sometimes it it works. But I think I am an authentic person, um, and yeah, I think that that would make me that would be my unique selling. But you're also position. decisive. It's very yes. rare walk into somebody's office and within two or three minutes, they say to your proposal, yes or no. And for me, that was such a refresher. You have no idea how you get like sent from pillar to post to have somebody that understands I have a position, I have authority and I can make a decision. Yes. One of the things I really believe in is you've got to decide. Yeah. You might make the wrong decision, mm. you might make the right decision, but decide. Mm. Uh, because a lot of things don't work because people do not make decisions. And in fact, indecisiveness can cost businesses lots of money. Yeah. It can cost people so much just because you don't make the decision or you don't make the decision on time. Yes. So I do believe that, you know, at some point you've got to analyze information, you've got to look at what you've got in front of you and you've got to make a call. Yeah. You know, if you don't make a call, then you actually do yourself and the business a lot more of a disservice than when you do make a decision. I'd rather make a wrong decision than make no decision. Yeah. But I think also as an African female, which is the perspective I came from, mm. you didn't care that you don't know me. You know, it's about the proposal. Yes. And most of us, we're making our decisions, who are you? You know, which is part of why we're having issues around conflict of interest, mm. I suppose, and only giving business to people that we know and when somebody says no it's okay it's based on a business case mm. and I think for me that was the thing that was most striking so keep it up whichever way it's working for you what was the vision you had for your life you know the way it has um, unfolded is it anything like you thought it would I don't know if I had like a long-term vision especially growing up because in the in the era that we grew up your options were very limited. Mm. So the role models that one had were like perhaps teachers, doctors, lawyers, you know, those were the, the career streams. Yeah. So I saw myself as, as an attorney, actually, or a teacher. Um, and the reason why is because I liked L.A. Law. <laughs> you know, <laughs> TV shows. Ooh, like, oh, was what a... guy? Oh, <laughs> the black guy. What was his name? I can see. I can't remember. But yeah, I, can I, see mean, so I, thought, I thought law would be, <laughs> yeah. you know, that... Yeah. exciting thing that you do um, and in fact when I went to university in my first year I did law and I realized that uh, it was it's not, not for you. it's not sexy it's not exciting and uh, yeah and then I then I changed mm -hmm. into something else and you did BCom I did a BCom risk management and marketing Ins why did you choose risk and insurance, insurance. management I mean I, I soon got into the industry later but it was not something that I would have thought of so uh, my, I had an uncle um, who was an insurance broker. Okay. Suave gentleman, very stylish. Uh, you know, he he was all the things I wanted to be when I when I grow up. So looking at him, I thought, oh wow. And he worked in insurance, and I thought, 
you know, this is a great career and mm. you seem to, to have a decent, you know, livelihood. Yeah. And um, so that was one of the reasons why I was attracted to the industry. Nothing more than that. Secondly, the, the name sounded, you know, of the course, because, you yeah. know, when you're a student, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you go there and you look at the name and the lecturer was hot. <laughs> so <laughs> those three That's things together. That's a winning together. combination. Uh, you know, for me, uh, made made it all worthwhile. But the reason why I've stayed in insurance is much more fundamental. So insurance for me is one of the few categories of business where it is a commercial good and a social good. Mm. And what I mean by commercial and social good, insurance benefits the state, it benefits the firm, and it benefits the individual. And how it does that is because when someone has got insurance, insurance is there to protect you should the unfortunate yep. happen. Whether it is uh, on your asset side or your own life, it is going to happen at some point. We don't know when it's going to happen and to whom it's going to happen. So when you have insurance, you are so much better off than when you don't have insurance. So take a case of a, a child hmm. who is in grade 11, has got a mother and a father. Perhaps the, the father is the breadwinner and works. Um, if that father happens to die in a car accident yeah. for whatever reason, without insurance, depending on how their asset base is, right? if they don't have um, lots of assets, if they're staying in Gokajiso and they just maybe have a, the house that they're renting, a council house, that, that child, no matter how much their potential is, is unlikely to ever reach their full potential. They're unlikely to ever get the skills that they require because at grade 11, the moment that tragedy happens, their whole trajectory changes. From that moment onwards, that child is unlikely to go to university. They're going to have to find a job, either to help support the family. But if there is insurance in place, that child's future is completely different. I take Kahiso again, where four years ago there was a hailstorm all around Gauteng, and people's homes were completely gutted by this hail. Now, You've had your home for 20 years. You live from hand to mouth. When your roof is gutted, it costs about 30% of the property value to fix the roof. You know, it took some people out, drive past, and I'd see people's homes 18 months later, and they still weren't fixed. It was still plastic and, and rocks on top of the roof. And that's the difference that insurance makes. Because yeah. it's a grudge purchase for us. It's kind of like, really? Do I need it? I'd rather spend on this shoe, on that bag, you know, until it happens, until we need it. Until you're diagnosed with an illness and you're unable to work. Yeah. And suddenly that shoe can do nothing for you. Yeah. Um, and, and whenever people complain about the insurance, and I, I, I always say, particularly life insurance, I say you should be grateful that you don't need to claim because when you do need to claim, yeah. the stakes are very different yeah. to when you don't need to. So, yes, people begrudge, but, you know, when you use your logical head, you shouldn't be begrudging insurance because it is one of the things that you need to protect yourself. Yeah. You know, it's, it's protecting, it's a pool of people coming together and saying, well, if anything happens to you, I'm here for you. Yeah. That's what it is. Like, I principle. mean, that's how we used to like save in, mm. in townships and things. Yes. Um, you spent 20 years now in financial services sector. What have been your biggest barriers that you've experienced as an African female and how did you overcome those? My biggest barriers have been the boxes that people have put me in, mm. the, the, the straight jackets that I'm supposed to operate within that I don't necessarily subscribe to. 
So whether it is a paternalistic kind of attitude or just pure misogyny, yeah. where you come across, I, I, I recall um, earlier in my career, someone who would uh, walk in and say, hey, little girl, uh, you know, and, and at some point... Oh, when I they had do to, that, when they <laughs> meet you... No, I'm not cute, so I don't, I don't, I haven't suffered that, I must say. I don't think it's got to do with cuteness. I, you know, I'm like, I am older now, stop doing that. But anyway. Yeah, so it's, it's when people will, will say things like, hey, little girl, um, especially when I was younger. Um, and it would be the expectations that I should operate up until here. I cannot speak to this person. I cannot have views and and I, I think that was that was the, the most of my battles have been around that where someone thinks that they should control how I think, they should control my lived experience, they should control my my opinions, um, and and I recall also earlier in the career when I was in product development, and I would would be working on a financial services product and coming from a township background, I knew how inherently how people live what they consume how you know i didn't need a research company to come and tell me that and and at, at times you'd have huge debates with an actuary over certain things and and you'd have to say to them listen this is the information until you support it with other data yeah and sometimes you'd lose so much time trying to substantiate something that where you understand the market you understand what it is that people are looking for and what are the social challenges because a lot of times with financial services the the money is a byproduct. People are trying to solve for a specific problem. Yeah. And the problem that needs to be solved for, you need to understand the social context in order to solve for it mm. appropriately. Yes. You know, there was, a, there was a time when we were working on a life insurance product and they were not understanding why life insurance is not selling. Yeah, because usually Africans are known for funeral policies, yes. not life policies. Yes. Okay, this is great. Now you're going to sort that out for us. <laughs> so there's some structural issues. Um, in terms of the structural issues, the government actually needs to get the, the policy right because the cost of doing insurance or, or, or having a life insurance policy is very high because mm. of the compliance mm -hmm. reasons. So you need a, a higher license. So the supply side okay. is limited. Yeah. That's, that's one of the reasons. That's one of the major reasons. Mm -hmm. But from a, uh, from a demand side, um, there's some psychological issues where people don't want their lives to mm. be worth a lot of money when they're dead. So if suddenly Auntie so-and-so, if they die, you know, there's going to be some two million rand that's going to come out of it. They feel like someone might accelerate that process oh, wow. of, of dying. Yeah. So there are those kind of fears that are, that are in place um, that people think, you know, um, and those kind of things can be solved by just consumer education, yeah. just making people understand. If you that understand that inside, then you're able to mm -hmm. solve for it. But another thing is that people just don't know, mm. particularly in, uh, on the mass side. And it used to break my heart. At other times, you'd see people's payslips, uh, particularly in the civil service, where the insurance deductions were so yeah. much. Yeah. And it, it was shocking that, you know, the, the brokers themselves would, would do things like that, where someone would end up yeah. taking a, the bulk of the salary towards insurance. insurance yeah. That tells you that this person has got a need, they've identified the need, but they've got the wrong product solutions. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, a, it's a very complex situation. It's not a, an easy, it's just supply or it's just demand, but yeah. there's, it's, it's, it's more complex. There's than a that. whole human 
um, aspect of insurance that you're bringing that I've been in the industry um, and also on the regulator side. So, but I'm glad you keep sharing those insights because I think that's the conversations we really don't have, mm. uh, which is great. Because I know we, we end up attacking the overselling, but to really put a human being behind that and the implications of that. Uh, you say that you've learned over the years to help your male counterparts to live with their discomfort when it comes to who you are and their reaction to you. What do you mean and how do you do that? What do I mean by saying people must live with their discomfort? Yes. I, I, I know that there are people who I come across that don't feel comfortable, whether they are not comfortable with my confidence, whether they are not comfortable with my voice. And, and I've learned to understand that that's their issue. It's not really my issue. It's not for me to deal with. And letting someone live with their discomfort is acknowledging that they are empowered to change their attitude. They are empowered to, to look at the situation, look at me and, and accept me for who I am, just like I accept them for who yeah. they are, and, and, and make that work. And if they can't, then I think they are completely within their rights to sit with that discomfort and, and until such time that they, they change their attitudes. Mm. So if someone is going to dislike me because of my race, because of my gender, is going to want to box me because of those things, and they are uncomfortable that I refuse to be boxed and I refuse to fit neatly in yeah. the package that they want, yes. yeah. I think it's, it's for them to, to just live with that discomfort. I like that. I really like your reasoning there. Uh, now that you've mentioned that, you know, people like me who have this particular accent are usually thought of as particular kind of people, whatever those particular kind of people are. Um, and then on top of that, then they find out, oh, you went to a private school before 1994. 1994. That's, that's sacrilege sometimes. And then we are judged. Um, what types of stereotypes and misconceptions have you been able to debunk that you know people have given you feedback? and said, hmm, I expected you to be this way, and you're not. You're taking me way back. So when you, when you are a child growing up in apartheid South Africa in the 80s, and you go to a private school, you're always an outlier. When you're at school, yeah. you're an outlier. You when never you're fit in. In, the, in the township, you're an outlier, because in the township, you are that child that goes to a white school. Um, and when you're in the school, you're that black child in a white school. So you, you are always someone who is looked at as an other. And when you are looked at as an other, um, obviously there will be labels that are, that are put onto you. Yeah. And so the, the, the myths or, um, are, are things like, you know, when you are supposed to be all elitist, you are supposed to think you're better than everyone else. Um, or the worst one is that people think I can't write or read Isisulu. Yeah. Well, mm. I'm like, but, but why? Because I'm just cool about it. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, they, 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 would, they would think, and then they would think I wouldn't know idioms. Hmm. And I'm thinking, but, but this is my first language. The fact that I happened to go to a school where I was instructed in another language mm. does not diminish the fact that, you know, this is my mm. identity. I'm also expected not to be proud of my heritage yeah. and, and identity because suddenly I'm supposed to have assimilated and wanted to be... You're a coconut now. I know, I, 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 strongly not. Yes. Uh, but, but there is that, that expectation. Mm. And, and I'm proud, I always say I'm a, a, a daughter of proud Zulu, Zulu warriors. That is, that is my identity. So 
there, there's always that. And then from a, from from my white counterparts, there's that expectation that you sh- you should be different. You're you're not like them. Like them, yeah. Um, so and, you should feel better confuses, that you're not like them. Yeah, yes. the, the, the them confuses me because I'm not sure who them. they are. I guess being the outlier, you're always people always decide who you're supposed to be and are either surprised or disappointed that you're not, you know, mm. you, you're a collection of all the different experiences. So I can walk into a room in Hyde Park and I can walk into a room in Alexandra and I can work those two rooms and feel at home and feel completely at home yeah. because I understand the psyche of Hyde yes. Park and I understand the psyche of Alexandra. Isn't that one of the value propositions which people misunderstand? Perhaps the, the worlds that we're able to, to understand because you're always yes. on the outside. You're able to yes. observe, yes. which for me as a strategist, I, I, rel- I relish in that and I enjoy that. Um, you believe that women should be activists. Yes. What do you mean and how do you suggest that we show up in the workplace? One of the tragedies of the workplace, particularly, particularly when I look at women, female colleagues and, and women I've worked with generally, is we are almost apologetic about the roles that, that we take on. Um, so I, I say to, to, to young ladies that when you are given a place at the table, you mm-hmm. own that place. Whether you are there by invitation, if you are invited to an exco meeting and you are a junior person, if you are given a voice, use it. Mm. If they ask you for your opinion... they ask you to come to the room. Yes. If you've been invited in, there's a reason why you're there and you're supposed to contribute and and add value. Mm. Secondly, um, there are certain beliefs that may be held, particularly around boardrooms, and there are certain things that, um, you know, people make decisions based on their own vantage points. And as a, as a female, I believe it's important that I share the perspective of those that are like me, that are females, that, you know, need someone to represent them. So we, we had a, a meeting recently where there was a requirement that people will have to come in for an extended amount of time. So in, in, in the meeting, everyone was quite happy and thought, oh, this is a good idea, you know, we'll come in on a Sunday and so on. So I then mentioned to the guys that, you know, as a mother, my, my Sundays are about preparing the kids for the rest of the week. They are about making sure that everyone in the house is ready. And if I'm not present, then the whole setup is disturbed. So if we are going to ask people to be away from their homes for whatever reason, let's make sure that we find a way that they are accommodated. Mm. And if they happen not to be able to, we mustn't judge them negatively. Yes. Mm because you don't understand what, what that means. As a, I'm fortunate that I've got a support system, but there are people who are raising their kids all on their own. Mm-hmm. And if you say, well, you know, come out for a certain period of time, they just can't do it. Yes. Not that they don't want to, mm-hmm. not that they're not cooperating. So I believe that as, as a woman, I need to give that perspective and I need to make sure that the views of those women who are not around the table, who are not able to represent themselves, uh, are heard. Yeah. And if someone is... Um, saying something that might prejudice mm. other women. It is my job to, to speak up. To, to speak up. Yeah. Maybe two books. You know, I usually want to ask about three books, but like maybe two books that you can recommend for a reading or listening library because a lot of us like listen in our cars these days. And what wisdom have you learned from the two books that you're going to share with me? I was looking at the books that I have read in the last year and I realized there's a pattern. Most of them mm-hmm. are by female authors, okay. very strong women who are successful. I'd never realized that that's who I like reading. Yes. But um, so the one that has really 
inspired me and has surprised me is Becoming by Michelle Obama. Uh -huh. I honestly didn't think it would be great. I thought it was all hype. <laughs> um, because, I mean, she's a strong brand. So I thought, oh, you know, yeah. it's, 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 it's going to be... Given. It's a That's given that be, everyone's yeah. going to hype it up because it's Michelle yeah. Obama. But she has surprised me so much. And, and, and the, I could relate to so many things that, you know, the, how she grew up, um, the, her whole lived experience. But I think for me, the thing that really surprised me is how Michelle doubted that they could be in the White House. Mm. You know, it was just something that is just so, such a foreign thing. Barack, I think, had all the confidence. And even himself, I think, at some point he doubted himself. But oh, Michelle, not in her wildest dreams did she think that she would live the life that she has lived. And yet she took on that role. And with, she took it wow. on with grace and she took it on and absolutely owned it. Yeah. But when you, when you realize that even she had some insecurities, mm. it, it made me feel a whole lot better knowing that, oh, okay, if Michelle can think, you know, she can't do it, then wow. The other one, um, this one is a male author. It's a guy called David Goggins. Mm -hmm. He's a Navy SEAL. And he... His book is about really just overcoming all your, your own mental limitations and your physical barriers. He, he was an obese child, mm -hmm. um, came from a very abusive um, family where his family, his father was a successful businessman, but he ran that house like, like a dictator. And eventually his mother escaped and they started a new life. And he, he was like a loser. A complete mm. there's no other way of, of describing it until one day he decided to change his mind yes and the things that he's gone on to achieve have been phenomenal wow. he's been an ultra uh, marathon guy he's run on broken bones he's he's just he is amazing i follow him on instagram as well and mm. he is incredibly fit for a man his age so although he's in his 40s, yeah. uh, mid 40s, yeah. and I mean, all those men who tell us that it's age, it's not age. Just <laughs> go back and... Another excuse? Okay. We all have to... Workouts. <laughs> yeah. uh, you believe in the importance of role models. Uh, why do you think they're so critical? And do you see yourself as a role model? I think everyone is a role model. Yeah. Um, most of my role models were not people that were on pedestals. Most of my role models have been people that I had access to, people that I observed, people that I never told you are my role model. Mm -hmm. um, I think role models are people that you see and there's something that resonates with you when you see them yeah. either doing, living their lives, doing what it is that they do. So I do believe that I am a role model and I believe all of us are role models at different stages. And I love the fact that in, in our culture, in this is traditionally, um, as you go through the ages, you start off being in Dombazane, then you become in Dombi, then as in Dombi you have Ikrigiza. Ikrigiza is a, an older lady that guides you and is like a, a mentor. So I think societally we've got that built in anyway. Mm. And it's and it not a, a famous person. It's not a famous person. It's someone who helps you along, along the way. So I do think um, that I am a role model. I do think everyone is a role model. Um, and they... We, we must take that seriously. And if someone comes to you and asks, what can I do and ask for advice, you need to, to think about it and give them the best advice that you can because they might be modeling themselves in one aspect of their lives based on what it is that they see you doing. Yeah. And particularly as a parent, um, that's the biggest role model that you ever have in life. You know, your, your mother, your father, the people that you live 
around those are the biggest role models because that's who you copy from the time you're little mm. so I, I i do think it's a it's an important thing in life mm. and for me as you say that i'm also thinking of um sometimes we have a uniform way of looking at role models the one thing you also kind of interested in is diversity you know in south africa our transformation pace has been very slow what is it that we're missing there's nothing really that's missing from a transformation in the workplace perspective government must just enforce the rules yeah i won't change if there's nothing that is forcing me so we need a, an external force to come and say this is this is a change a lot of times where people don't see the benefit of diversity is because they've never been exposed to it they don't know what the benefit is because they don't they are living in a sea of sameness for so long and things seem to work so I, I honestly think diversity is an imperative. If I, if, if you and I are sitting here, if I look at this plant right now, I can see from my vantage point and I can tell you I can see a complete picture because I can. Mm. But the picture is not complete because your angle is different. Is yeah. different. And, and that's what diversity brings into business. When I look at, at a, a situation and my colleague looks at a situation, we bring in the collective experience that we've had and it is completely different. I come from a completely different background. You come from a different background. The next guy comes from a different background. Yeah. And when we sit together and we co-create, what we can co-create as a diverse group of people is completely unmatched yeah. to what can be co-created by people who are all the same. same. Because we've got so many different angles to look at. Yeah. And I think in South Africa, diversity is, or, or transformation is seen as a threat. Mm. It actually isn't a threat. And I've had, I've, I've challenged people, particularly when um, I've had ex-colleagues who've said, oh, you know, I'm white, I'll never get a job, you know, in this country and so on. And, 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 I, and I say to them very simply, if you look at what the transformation targets are, you can look at it and say 26% of the jobs are reserved for black people. Or you can look at it and say over 70% of the jobs are reserved for white people. Mm. It's all about the vantage point that you're looking at. And people who are struggling the most with transformation or are having to face the barrel of a gun are people who didn't do it when they were supposed to. Yes. So everything is now being crammed into a very short space of time because you've had the opportunity. 25 you didn't years. do it. Yeah. And now it's being imposed on you. So I think it's, 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 transformation is a business necessity. You access different markets the moment you have transformation. Mm. I can open doors that my colleagues can never, ever be able to open. They can open doors that I can't open. Without being corrupt. Because yes. we usually get called in because we're going to be paying somebody not because of the skill set and knowledge that yes. we bring to a particular situation. And, and, and I can tell you now that if I walk into a certain room, I can have a rapport with, with people, certain people, and my other colleague who might happen to be a white male will have a rapport with others. If we can leverage both of these, we grow the cake. Yeah. Yeah, that's this what it's thing about. of being obsessed about shrinking ourselves to greatness is never going to take us anywhere. We must realize that competition is not within South Africa. Competition, we are competing against the Vietnam. European bloc. We are competing against the Gosh. East. We are competing against, you know, the, the, the ECOWAS. We are mm. competing against so many 
other places. And our job as South Africans is to put South Africa forward and is to put our best foot forward yeah. as a collective. Instead of and fighting each other. obsessing about, you know, I am this or that. And in fact, in South Africa, we, we try and reduce ourselves to the lowest lowest point where it's like okay she is a zulu girl from umlazi you mm. know that makes her different from a zulu girl from guamashu or a girl from the eastern cape no we are south africans first mm. and we need to look at ourselves as south africans and make sure that we grow this country because if we grow this country we make it prosperous not only for my children but for your children yeah. and everyone else's children oh boy we can talk forever um what wisdom do you want to leave us with? You know, something that um, you've either thought of, observed, something you want us to remember you by. So um, I think for me, the most important thing is to say, be yourself, um, have a goal, aim for the best that you can be. Don't, don't sell yourself short. Um, a lot of times, many of us, go out into the world and all we do is feed ourselves with negativity. Someone gives you a compliment, own it. Someone says to you, you look lovely. Yeah, sometimes that's difficult, I know. <laughs> Someone says to you, you look lovely. Appreciate it. Don't try and be like, oh, no, no, actually, this old thing, you know, say, because if you start accepting it there, when your work gets praised in every aspect of your life, whenever you get affirmed, you will accept the affirmation and you will build your confidence because with confidence, anything is possible. And without it, you really have very little. Wow. I, I couldn't have said it better. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy that. Now do you understand, even after knowing her for a short time, what I thought you should be exposed to Ayanda Siboni. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wisdom Personified Conversations with Durum Somi. Please also like, follow and subscribe to our channel and share the wisdom with your friends. I would love it if you could rate and review as well. Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi is also available on YouTube, Facebook Watch, Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as Spotify. Enjoy the wisdom journey.